0: Good morning. Our next case is in the matter of JN and LN. We'll hear from the appellant.
1: Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Benjamin Cole. It's my privilege and honor to represent the father in this case. First, I'd like to say just thank you very much for the opportunity to have this discussion today. Of course, this is a very important issue for my client and his family. But of course, the outcome of this case has the potential to impact every single parent in North Carolina. Can a court grant custody of your child to somebody else over your opposition without ever concluding that you are an unfit parent? Peter Peterson presumption says absolutely not. The Peterson presumption is the well-established constitutional rule in North Carolina which recognizes that a parent is presumed to be fit. Practically, then, that means that if a court is going to grant guardianship of your child to someone else, the court must first conclude that you are an unfit parent. Otherwise, without that conclusion, the decision to grant guardianship or permanent custody to a non-parent, that type of ruling would offend the Due Process Clause. That's what this court has told us. That type of order would offend the Due Process Clause. But that's exactly what happened here. The trial court granted guardianship of my client's children to somebody else, despite his opposition, without ever concluding that he was an unfit parent. So he appealed to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals said, sorry, you can't raise that issue because you did not raise a constitutional parental rights argument, that was their language, at the trial court. Never mind the fact that he actively opposed during the hearing, put on evidence, testified himself, uh, opposed the guardianship, and the court never concluded that he was an
2: unfit parent. Why wouldn't the respondent father be required here to expressly articulate his constitutionally protected right uh, to preserve those rights. Uh, We do have those kinds of articulations uh, in the law uh, to preserve records. You've got to make certain motions to preserve the record in some matters. Have to make certain objections uh, during jury instructions. You have to make certain utterances. Why would that not apply here?
1: Your Honor, I think there's, there's three answers to that question. These are the three main points that I'd like to cover today. I think the first and the most important, and the answer that I think should dictate the outcome of this case, is that this issue is automatically preserved for appellate review under Rule 10. Right? Alternatively, if the court does not agree with that, the issue is still preserved under Rule 10, under the Court of Appeals logic and reasoning in the BRW case, which is the case that's actually up next today before this court. Right. In that case, the court conducted an analysis to determine whether, despite the lack of any explicit raising of a constitutional argument, did the fact that the parent posed the government's request for guardianship, was that in and of itself enough to implicitly invoke Peterson presumption? So that would be the second reason. The third reason would be that affirming here, ruling that a parent can waive this important constitutional right, is directly contrary to the public policy of our state, both the legislative public policy and the executive public policy, as stated in DSS's own policy manual. So as to the first question, Your Honor, the automatic preservation, right? What does Rule 10 say about automatic preservation? Rule 10 preserves automatically a certain number of different issues, one of which is, quote, whether the judgment is supported by the findings of fact and the conclusions of law. That's an issue in every case that is automatically preserved for appellate review. This court has already told us that the Peterson rebuttal is a conclusion of law. The case from last year from this court, in Ray IK. There's three IK cases cited in the briefs. Two of them are Court of Appeals. One IK case from this court. And in that case, you know, this court conducted uh, conventional uh, findings supported by clear and convincing evidence. Do the findings support a conclusion of law? And one of those conclusions of law in that case was whether the Peterson presumption had been properly rebutted. So the rebuttal of the Peterson presumption is a conclusion of law. Right? The Peterson line of cases, Adams, OMB, Price, uh, they all tell us that a guardianship order must include a Peterson rebuttal. Because if the guardianship order does not include the Peterson rebuttal, it offends the due process clause. It's an unconstitutional order. In other words, the Peterson presumption is a conclusion of law that you must have in every single guardianship order. So under Rule 10, it's automatically preserved. Right? It's a, that's a very, very brief argument. But those are all the details that you need to get to the answer in this case those details dictate the outcome of this case the peterson rebuttal is a conclusion of law that is automatically preserved under rule 10 because it is a conclusion of law that must be in every guardianship order now it bears noting that the uh, appellees had no arguments in response to this point in their briefs right the guardians were the only of the three parties that even tried to put forth an argument about it, but they completely overlooked the relevant portion of Rule 10, right? They did acknowledge that Rule 10 does automatically preserve some issues, and then they pointed to the relevant portions of the rule. They said jury instruction issues, plain error issues, and criminal cases, those are automatically preserved. Of course, not relevant here, but they completely omitted any mention of the portion
0: that's relevant here. Well, t- t- the t- l- Mr. Cole, typically, the uh, if you have a conclusion of law, that's a, that's a legal determination that is to be made based on the findings, and at least if it's done correctly, if I understand it, uh, the what you would do would be to look at the findings, and then the court, be it a trial court or, or an appellate court conducting de novo review, would look at the uh, look at those findings and determine whether the applicable legal standard had or had not been met Uh, is assuming that that's a correct understanding of what we do when we have a conclusion of law. Why couldn't the uh, appellate court on review simply determine? I mean, your argument before was there's no no. Conclusion on this subject, therefore, remand or something of that nature. Can the appellate court just look at it on uh, appeal and then make an independent new determination of uh, whether the constitutional rights of the parents are breached?
1: I would say no for two different reasons, Your Honor. Um, and this is one case I cited in my. I mean, and I'm
0: not trying to get into whether you know whether the court here ought to rule on whether the constitutional standard satisfied or not? Just can an appellate court generally in the first instance make that determination?
1: I would say no, Your Honor. Um, when a trial court fails to make a conclusion of law that's required in cases like this, in child welfare cases, it happens all the time. And those orders are routinely remanded. Right In termination cases, uh, perhaps the most common example is uh, dependency cases. Uh, when the trial court needs to conclude that there was a lack of alternative caregiver, right? We see that regularly. Whenever the court fails to make that conclusion...
0: Well, aren't, the, aren't those typically, though, cases in which there are evidence that could support various findings of fact, the findings of fact weren't made and therefore the case was remanded to the trial court for determination of what the facts were? Aren't those, isn't that typically what happens in those cases?
1: Well, I think it depends on whether we're talking about findings of fact or conclusions of law. So, yeah, uh, I think perhaps another way of considering it is the Koble case. The Koble case in my memorandum of additional authority talks about the need for a trial court order to be complete for it to be subject to appellate review. Right. In Koble case, this court talked about every link of the chain in the trial courts. Right, I mean, I mean, I think
0: we're all all the familiar with COBOL that gets cited probably as much as anything that we see.
1: Right, so without that conclusion of law, right, if, if you cannot look at the trial court's order and see that the trial court did make a conclusion that the Peterson presumption was rebutted, then we have no way of knowing that the trial court even knew that the Peterson presumption existed, right, and then we're assuming that the trial court would have decided to grant custody if it knew that the Peterson presumption existed and that it had an important constitutional question to answer. So if we look at a blank order that does not include the answer to that important constitutional question, we have no way of knowing whether the trial court did its job to consider the important constitutional rights that are at issue.
3: I want to ask about your response to what I understand um, the um, Department of Social Services to be arguing regarding the, f- the fact that in a case like this, unlike Peterson, in a case here where there's been an adjudication of abuse or neglect, that that is arguably a per se determination that the um, parent has acted in a manner contrary to their protected status, at least in this particular case.
1: Your Honor, I think the important uh point to emphasize there is this court's decision in Montgomery, which like Kobold is cited ad nauseum perhaps, for the important point that an initial adjudication, neglect adjudication, is about the child's condition, and not about the question of parental neglect. Right? In this case, it was a perfect example of why that is so. Right? We had a, a baby with very bad injuries show up at the emergency room. DSS immediately became involved, of course, as they should, and investigate and figure out what happened. By the time it came up for the, uh, the adjudication, there, there were still no answers about what happened. But of course, something awful had happened to this child. This child had serious injury. So the child could be adjudicated as abused and neglected without any determination of parental fault. But even if you had a determination of parental fault, right? Then the question becomes: does that determination in the initial adjudication order have a preclusive effect? Down the road, for example, in a termination order or in a guardianship order, and I would say no because again, under Montgomery, at the initial adjudication order, parental fault is not on the table, so it's not an issue that's essential to the judgment, so if you're asking whether under issue preclusion, then you prevent it from relitigating that question, I would say no well to not go quite that far
3: and to not even um, say it's per se determination is it is it Possible to say that if, that we can look at the findings of fact that the trial court did make to see whether any of them would rise to the level of the Peterson rebuttal that you're talking about. Well,
1: uh, again, for the same reasons I was explaining to Justice uh I would say. Um, lost my train of thought. <laughs>
3: Well, I can, can you ask, the question? Yes, I can ask the question in a slightly different way. One way that I understand the argument here on, on your client's behalf is that is that by opposing guardianship, he's essentially raising his constitutional right to parent. Am I wrong? That's, I would say
1: that's the alternative argument, Your Honor, okay. and I, I do not think that is the correct conclusion, right? because I don't think you have to stand up and actively oppose it. Right? The Peterson line of cases, OMB, Adams, the way those cases are written, they clearly state that the, the moving party must rebut the presumption. The trial court must reach the conclusion that the presumption has been rebutted. Otherwise, the order is unconstitutional. But,
3: but isn't there some significance to the distinction that those cases didn't arise in the abuse, neglect, and dependency? Absolutely
1: not, Your Honor, A constitutional right for a parent constitutional right to parent.
3: Right. It, I'm not suggesting that the constitutional right is different, but I'm suggesting that the factual record that's been developed in the case in those two circumstances is different. What? Well, or may be different.
1: It may be, Your Honor, but I think this case is an example of why it can't be always, right? Okay. Because in this case, you don't have findings of parental fault for what happened, right? You have findings of the facts of injury, you have findings about the circumstances, you have findings uh, that my client has explained from the very beginning that he doesn't know how these injuries occurred, but you don't have any findings that clearly assign blame to any particular person for what happened to this child.
0: What did did the trial counsel in this case argue to the court at the conclusion of the hearing with respect to the issue of guardianship?
1: They posted, it. they asked. And
0: and, and, and what specifically did, you know, I'm not going to ask you to repeat the whole thing. I know it's in the transcript, but just in a one or two line summary, why did they say it was inappropriate to uh, award guardianship in this case?
1: Uh, I believe, Your Honor, uh, it was based on the fact that my client had been complying with this case plan Doing everything he was supposed to do to the best of his ability, uh, and therefore she asked to continue with the path towards reunification.
0: Do, does a parent's trial counsel have any obligation to at least alert the trial court as to what the issues that the court has to decide are?
1: I don't think so, Your Honor. Because and so, it, so I mean, it's
0: perfectly, just, It's perfectly appropriate to just absolutely. You, I mean, I know we've got a, the court of appeals has a case in which no opportunity for argument was made. Right. But let's say hypothetically that the trial court looks down at counsel for the parties at the end of the, the hearing and it says, would anybody like to be heard? And counsel for the DSS and the guardian ad litem stand up and argue for guardianship. And the counsel for the um, parent sits there and says nothing. I'm not suggesting that that would... Frequently, be wise trial strategy, but let's assume that happened. Does that have any effect on the scope of review that the trial court, the appellate court, is entitled to to, uh, conduct at all?
1: As to this particular issue?
0: As as to any issue.
1: Well, I think it depends. Then you have to.
0: I mean, in this instance, for example, there's there's the constitutional issue that you're talking about, and there's also various statutory requirements as well. Sure. uh, given that we've got both a constitutional and a statutory uh, set of issues here, does silence have any effect on the ability of a, on, on the preservation an issue for consideration by the appellate court?
1: Well, I think if the question is whether it's preserved, the inquiry has to start with Rule 10. Right? And Rule 10 does not distinguish between constitutional and non-constitutional right. issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: and so but you you said something earlier that I could be could be understood to suggest that there might be a difference though, and I was that's why I was asking the question that I asked. We have a totally silent uh, trial counsel for the parent. The court awards guardianship, goes up on appeal. Does the counsel's silence have anything to do with the ability of the appellate counsel for the parent to advance? particular arguments before the appellate court?
1: depends on the issue.
0: Right? All right. It, well, to, which, 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 in, in broad strokes, which issues would and would not uh, be so preserved in your the, view?
1: The issue is, is whether the court did or did not properly make a conclusion of law that is required to support the judgment, then regardless of whether that conclusion of law could be fairly de- uh, described as being constitutional in nature or not, Right, then that issue is automatically preserved under Rule 10. Now, if the parent made a constitutional uh, argument that a particular statute uh, was invalid because it violated equal protection, let's say, well then clearly there's no prior case law that says that that issue, or that, the, that the trial court must address that issue before it can enter the order. Right? That's what's so unique about this case. And, I, and it's, I don't know of any other example that compares to it. Peterson presumption, I believe, stands alone in that it requires trial court to make a conclusion that rebuts a presumption that is constitutional in nature. We're so accustomed to to the common law rule that constitutional issues need to be raised first at trial before they can be argued on appeal. But that common law rule has been subsumed by Rule 10. Right. Well, oh, 10, in,
0: in the in the criminal context, there's the Fourth Amendment, which, which typically says, for example, that uh, a warrantless search is presumed unconstitutional. Would the same rule apply there if we were dealing with a suppression motion involving a warrantless search?
1: Well, I'm not as experienced in that realm okay. of law as I am in this one, Your Honor. So I understand. I uh, wouldn't endeavor to answer. Um,
0: okay.
2: But the Court of Appeals is remanding the matter anyway in terms of what its ruling has held uh, for uh, some findings that were not entered pursuant to the statute. I I know you're seeking reversal, but could the Court of Appeals, pursuant to what it must do anyway in terms of what you're deeming as being the, the lack of any finding of fact, just merely on remand, include the determination that your client was an unfit parent? Could the Court of Appeals include that determination? Well, no, going back to the trial court, in terms of the remand by the Court of Appeals to the trial court for the uh, institution of the findings of fact that were not made pursuant to the statute under uh, subsections 3 and 4. You were talking about the fact that there's not a finding of fact that your client was an unfit parent. Could the Court of Appeals simply just have it go back to the, court of, to the trial court for the purpose of making that finding of fact as well? I
1: don't believe in this case that it could, Your Honor, because I don't believe there's evidence in the record to support that, right? The only issue, you know, the only source of unfitness here is whether or not my client was responsible in some way shape or form for the injuries to the child right and there was no evidence presented to that question at the guardianship
2: hearing is that your your contention or is that merely something for the trial court to determine upon remand potentially if we would find in that fashion
1: regarding the evidence that's in the record already yeah
2: concerning it unfitness of your client potentially I, I,
1: I think it's a a fair objective statement, Your Honor. The question of how did this child get injured was not a question that was discussed or litigated at the guardianship hearing, right? The focus of the guardianship hearing uh, was on case plan compliance, right? And I mean, questions were asked about the injuries and my client answered as he has all along that he doesn't know how those injuries were caused.
2: So by virtue of your thought that that's a a non-issue at this point even upon remand to the trial court if we would uphold the court of appeals you would not see this as being an opportunity for the trial court to rectify what you say would be an omission and that is finding that your client was unfit because that would not be before the trial court properly i believe there would
1: there would need to be a new hearing for the taking of evidence that could speak to the ultimate question of whether there was responsibility for the injury. Okay. I think this court's case in DWP, I believe from uh, two years ago, similar issue, right? Injured child, no one clearly knew how those injuries were caused, but in that case, that was a termination case. This court affirmed it because the trial court made a very detailed series of logical deductions in its findings of fact to say well there is no other plausible explanation here so the parent must be responsible one way or the other right we don't have those findings of fact here and we don't have from the guardianship hearing evidence that could support those types of findings of fact
2: and why do you feel we should overrule in ray
1: tp because in ray tp does not consider Henry T.P. only considers one possible option for preservation, right, explicitly raising an issue. Rule 10 has two other ways of preservation. Issues that are automatically preserved, such as whether a conclusion of law was made when it's needed to support the judgment, and whether an issue is apparent from the context. And that's the analysis the Court of Appeals used in BRW. There's a dissent, that's why the case is here today, but the, in, The dissent did not dissent about the preservation analysis, right? In BRW, the Court of Appeals implicitly rejected TP for this very reason. They said, yes, this parent did not say Constitution. This parent did not say Peterson. But this parent came to the guardianship hearing, opposed it. So what else could they have been doing other than invoking their constitutionally protected status, right? It would be absurd to suggest that any parent would voluntarily waive that right. Why would a parent show up to a guardianship hearing and say, yeah, I want to throw my constitutional right. Let's just have throw it out the window. Let's just have a best interest hearing, as if this is a parent
2: versus parent case. Can you analogize your position with any other aspect in juvenile law where there's not an express statement to preserve a right? Are you saying this is just a standalone because it is a constitutionally protected right? It deserves to stand alone. And
1: again, Honor, I don't think it's because it's constitutional. Right? Yes, it's constitutional, but the reason it's automatically preserved is because the Peterson line of cases tell us that the trial court must make this const- this conclusion of law that the presumption has been rebutted. Right? That presumption, that rebuttal, need not be explicitly constitutional. Right? A rebuttal that simply says uh, a conclusion that simply says the parent is unfit would be sufficient, right? It need not be an explicitly constitutional rebuttal. But the fact that the presumption arises from the parent's constitutional right isn't the reason that it's automatically preserved. The reason it's automatically preserved under Rule 10 is because the rebuttal is a conclusion of law that
2: must be in the order. So your, your position is, is rooted in the fundamental aspect of rebuttable presumptions not so much because it's a constitutionally protected parenthood, but because of the fact that the law of rebuttable presumption say that if there is a presumption that is established, there must be an express rebuttal of it?
1: Well, it is both, Your Honor. I think the fact that it's a rebuttal that must be made according to the Peterson line of cases, that's the reason why it's automatically preserved under Rule 10. The fact that it has constitutional roots, is also important, however, because if the Court of Appeals is affirmed, if parents in child welfare cases are allowed to involuntarily and unknowingly waive this right, then we have a two-class system of parents in North Carolina, right? Because in the civil context, in private cases, the Court of Appeals case law, which is well-established, tells us that the failure to even allege a rebuttal, let alone prove the rebuttal of the Peterson presumption, that's a jurisdictional defect, right? That issue can be raised at any time, under the Court of Appeals case law cited in my brief, any time that parent can raise their hand and say, well, what about my constitutional rights? Right, under the Court of Appeals ruling here, under TP, parents can't do that. If if the parent attorney doesn't raise their hand and say, Constitution Peterson, then that parent has involuntarily and unknowingly waived their constitutional right. And again, what parent would do that? And and if that's the rule, then how is that not ineffective assistance of counsel in in each and every case? There's simply no reason not to raise that issue see if it has to be raised. And to that point, I would direct the court to uh, another case in my memo of additional authority, which is a 1930s case from the Supreme Court, US Supreme Court, uh, which speaks briefly about the importance of considering waivers for constitutional rights. Uh, of course, in the criminal context, every important fundamental right that gets waived only gets waived after an colloquy by the trial court. So under the Court of Appeals reasoning here, right, this waiver of fundamental right would stand alone because it would be involuntary and unknowing, right? Right to trial, right to uh, testify on your own behalf, right to counsel, all of these important rights in criminal cases. Those don't get waived involuntarily and unknowingly, but this one would. With that, Your Honor, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time for a vote.
2: Thank you, Council.
1: Thank you.
0: We'll hear from the appellate.
4: Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Troy Shelton, and I represent Christy Wall and Tyler Price, who are the legal guardians of the children at issue in this case, and they're also the children's maternal grandparents. The athletes today are going to be dividing our argument into three parts. First, I'll address the nature of the constitutional right at issue in this case, and the problems with raising it for the first time on appeal. Next, Ms. Litwack, on behalf of the guardian ad litem, will address the case law from the Court of Appeals, which has repeatedly rejected arguments like Mr. Newman's. Finally, Ms. Boucher, a veteran attorney for the Department of Social Services and trial counsel in this case, will address how what happened below was fair to Mr. Newman and and the juvenile code worked exactly as the legislature intended. Turning first to the nature of the right at issue, it's true that parents have a due process interest in the care and custody of their children, but that interest can be outweighed by the state's interest in protecting children within the state's borders. Indeed, parents waive their rights when they are unfit or when they engage in acts inconsistent with their parental obligations. But how that right should be adjudicated in a proceeding like this is far from clear. This court and the Court of Appeals has repeatedly addressed parents' constitutional rights, but uh, in the vast majority of the cases have been in civil third-party custody disputes. Here, however, DSS intervened under the Juvenile Code, as it always does, based on the status of the children. DSS alleged that Jimmy and Lola were abused and neglected children. DSS then went on to prove that by clear and convincing evidence, in the adju- which was found by the trial court in its adjudication order. Mr. Newman has never appealed from the adjudication order. He doesn't challenge it on appeal today. Indeed, Mr. Newman has presented this case as one being about waiver, but it's about a lot more than just waiver. To agree with Mr. Newman on the waiver question, this court would, could possibly be addressing several other analytically prior questions, questions such as whether the juvenile code it provides adequate safeguards for a parent's constitutional right, when courts should recognize this kind of uh, constitutional right sua sponte, And when, in a juvenile code proceeding, this right ought to be addressed to a sponte by the trial court. Let me explain those three points. First, Mr. Newman's argument implies that the juvenile code is constitutionally defective, because it doesn't adequately protect a parent's constitutional rights. But the code provides extensive protections for parents and their rights. The facts are determined by a judge not an agency. And DSS can only intervene for three narrow reasons, abuse, neglect, and dependency. And it has to prove those reasons at the adjudication stage with clear and convincing evidence. Indigent indigent parents like Mr. Newman are given a free attorney and a right to be heard throughout the entire process. There's a presumption that kids will be reunified with their parents and DSS is required to provide services to make that happen. Now, on top of all of that there's periodic judicial review to ensure that dss is doing its job second mr newman is arguing that trial courts should raise appearance constitutional right sua sponte but there's no reason for that to have occurred in this kind of case once the children were adjudicated as abused and neglected it's unclear what role of any mr newman's constitutional right was to play this court has never suggested that there is a role for that right once there's an adjudication order of abuse and neglect indeed i read justice earl's opinion for the court in Enry eb as strongly suggesting that the adjudication order is sufficient to justify the parents or excuse me the state's own interest in protecting children and to outweigh the parents interest in the companionship and custody and care of their child so, so
3: let me ask you then, what's your response to the argument that the adjudication is about the, the condition and status of the child and doesn't necessarily uh, imply anything about the fitness of the parent?
4: Well, it, Your Honor, I, I think it does necessarily imply something about the fitness of the parent because DSS can't intervene just because a child is injured. It can only intervene when a child is injured, when that child is you know within the custody and care of a parent or a caretaker. And so I think that's that's the helpful nexus in this case, and I think that it's sufficient. And this court simply has just never addressed this question, which I think is you know mixes case. You know, you know, we're talking about waiver, but we're sort of assuming um, an answer to this merits question, um, which I think is, is wide open um, for decision, which makes it just you know a, a little bit uh, difficult uh, to answer. And, you know, I'd note that you know the juvenile code doesn't provide any requirement that a guardianship order make any findings about parents' constitutional rights. This court has never said that a guardianship order has to have those findings either. Third, uh, Mr. Newman's argument raises questions about when is it that the trial court is supposed to raise this issue on its own? He says that the dispositional order, which is the permanency planning order uh, on appeal in this case, which granted guardianship to my clients, he says that is the order that's supposed to have findings about Mr. Newman's constitutional rights. I don't think there's any particular reason why that would be the case. I think there are probably at least three candidates for orders that could contain the findings that the judge was apparently supposed to make sui sponte. The first would be the, non, the order for non-secure custody, which essentially works like a preliminary injunction in these types of cases. That's the order that takes the custody of the children out of Mr. Newman's custody and puts it, in it with the custody of DSS. That's the order that directly interferes with the parent-child relationship. But New- Mr. Newman doesn't say that, that order was supposed to have any findings. He doesn't appeal from that order. He doesn't say that it was incorrect. The next important order, as we've discussed, is the adjudication order. That is the order that justifies the state's interest in a due process analysis and in interfering with the parent child relationship. It is this phase of the proceeding where DSS is required to prove its allegations by clear and convincing evidence. But Mr. Newman didn't raise his constitutional right at this part of the proceeding either. And he hasn't appealed from the adjudication order and he's not even claiming that it's wrong on appeal. The last important order is the order on appeal here, the dispositional order, the one that granted guardianship to my clients. This phase, the dispositional phase, is of course the proceeding that applies the best interest standard. But that standard can't be applied if a constitutional right to the custody of the children still exists with the parent. So Mr. Newman knew going into to this hearing, that that if that his constitutional rights have essentially already been adjudicated, we are now at the best interest stage.
2: So, it's, so
0: are, so is it your argument then that once a determination has been made that a juvenile is abused or neglected, that there's no need to ever revisit the uh, constitutional issue?
4: I think that's I think that's almost always going to be the case under the juvenile codes. So I think the juvenile code is tailored to addressing the constitutional right. Perhaps there is some outlier, I'm sorry, i um, Go ahead. I, there, Perhaps there is some outlier case where there is just a little bit of room, but you know, a little bit of daylight between the, the constitutional requirement and the juvenile code. But this, I, Your Honor, I do not believe that this is uh, that case. So I don't think it's appropriate for a parent to sit on his hands and to sit on his constitutional rights until the dispositional stage, which is essentially the end of the case and you know, essentially try to raise a threshold question at that point. For these reasons, Your Honors, this case isn't just about waiver. It's about Mr. Noonan's efforts to totally disrupt the statutory scheme that's been created by the legislature. The juvenile code doesn't provide a special procedure for, rating, for raising a constitutional rights because the statute, statutory scheme itself is designed to adjudicate that right. It's built into the statutory framework. I'd like to turn next how this right at issue uh, interacts with this court's own preservation principles and i think a helpful place to start is me versus tj which this court issued probably about 10 days ago uh, that case of course involved whether an appellant had preserved a constitutional issue by presenting it to the trial court and the right at issue was whether chapter 50b's protections extended to same sex relationships this court stated the general rule Appellate courts will not pass upon a constitutional question unless it affirmatively appears that such question was raised and passed upon in the court below. Now, this court's analysis explained that Rule 10A1 has two distinct requirements, a timely objection and a ruling on that. And Of course, there aren't any magic words that are required for an objection, but it's got to be functionally enough to bring the issue to the trial court's attention. By contrast, this court said, in cases where this court has determined that an issue was not properly preserved, the records tend to include no reference to the issue at trial and I think without dispute that is this case mr. Newman can't point to any reference to his constitutional right being brought to the attention to the trial court
0: Is, and- is it your contention is assuming that there's a constitutional right to litigate the the word Constitution or fundamental or something like that has to be used uh, in order to preserve a constitutional claim separate and apart from uh, the statutory one that's normally at issue in a, in a permanency planning hearing? I,
4: yes, sir. I think something functionally similar uh, to that. Uh, because
0: is, as, as, as Mr. Call said earlier, we've got the next case up after this involved one where the Court of Appeals found and it doesn't seem to me that issues before us in that case that by virtue of litigating the issue of whether the creation of a guardianship was appropriate, did that suffice to preserve uh, a constitutional claim? I take it your argument would tend to suggest the Court of Appeal was wrong in making that determination in that case?
4: I think there are two problems with the R.W. Okay. The first is that, well. And I realize
0: we're not here to argue the R.W. I don't course. want to go and, too far down that road.
4: It's, but, a, it's a sealed case. I can't read the briefs. I can't read right. the record, right? But I can read the opinion from the Court of Appeals. I think the first problem in the Court of Appeals decision is that a parent could agree that they they lost their constitutional rights and they still have a right to participate and oppose guardianship at the dispositional phase or whatever the disposition is going to be. So by simply showing up and opposing what DSS wants, that doesn't tell you anything about whether they're raising a constitutional right. Second, secondarily, I think that BRW about issue preservation is sort of right for the wrong reasons. Uh, BRW doesn't, I don't think, have an issue preservation problem, the trial court as I read the Court of Appeals opinion, made a determination in its order um, about the constitutional right. I'm not, I can't tell if that was sua sponte or, or what, what provoked the trial court to make that determination, but there's no issue preservation rule if, if, the, if the trial court orders it. If you want to object to it, the way to do that is as um, uh, Mr. Cole has said, file a notice of, a, of appeal, and, and that's how you get judicial r- appellate reviews. So, so assuming
0: assuming that the trial court decides to include a constitutional conclusion in the order, at that point, we don't need to worry about preservation?
4: I don't think so, Your Honor. OK. Um, you know, turn back to Emmy versus TJ. Um, you know, I, I think it's helpful to note that this court didn't say, well, there's a constitutional question or issue at stake. Um, And I think that made sense because the preservation isn't more relaxed, it's stricter for constitutional uh, questions because of the canon of constitutional avoidance. This court contrasted ME with many other constitutional cases where the constitutional issue was not deemed automatically preserved. Those all included weighty interests such as lifetime satellite-based monitoring, jury selection errors in death penalty cases double jeopardy right against self-incrimination void for vagueness challenges under the due process clause and we can add others we could add this court's decision in re rd in 2020 which said that party can waive its constitutional right to cross-examination at tpr proceeding and of course due process uh, uh excuse me personal jurisdiction which is based on the due process clause, is an issue that the defendant has to raise um, at the threshold of the case or it's waived and if it were a simple ME as saying well there's an important constitutional question at stake then everything that ME said about issue preservation was really unnecessary uh the court could have just you know essentially adopted Mr. Newman's argument but that's not what the court did the court uh, undertook a scrupulous review of the record to show that the issue was raised and preserved well this and- is a
3: different situation from um, pretty entirely from ME isn't it in that there was a colloquy in the trial court about the constitutional issue, including citation to cases and a back and forth with the trial court. So it's – this didn't – that didn't happen here.
4: Uh, th- that, that's, in fact, my, my point, Your Honor. I, I think that the preservation was, uh, from my reading of the court's opinion, seemed quite clear And me, and here there's simply no mention of it. But the court
3: – We also didn't address the constitutional issue by this court. Because
4: it that, wasn't before the, us. Yes, I, I, I understand that, Your Honor. And, uh, you know, I think that if, you know, this court undertook a close review of the record in ME, and I think that made sense because one of the problems with automatic preservation uh, is the problems of gamesmanship and sandbagging. We don't know if Mr. Trial, if Mr. Newman's trial counsel uh, made the strategic decision not to raise the constitutional issue in this case, but we do know that Mr. Newman's appellate counsel is not raising an ineffective assistance claim, even though, those are, even though those are available in cases under the juvenile code. We also know that automatic issue preservation should be limited because it overtaxes trial courts. Parents' constitutional right cases from this court and from the court of appeals—I'm sure, you know—from your honor's own experience—they're incredible. You know that they're incredibly fact-intensive. Uh, I think it, it's quite a bit to say that a trial court also recognize um, that kind of issue and address it sua sponte, and I think that's especially true in cases of abuse and neglect. If a parent thinks that the adjudication of abuse and neglect is insufficient to rebut what you know, Mr. Cole calls the Peterson presumption, then I think they at least bear the responsibility of mentioning that uh, to the trial court. I think automatic issue preservation also doesn't make a lot of sense in juvenile cases because they don't—they're not, they're not like a normal civil case. Not like you have a trial and it's over. This case is still going on um if you know, mr newman's constitutional right can still be raised after an adjudication order then he can raise it again either through a motion to dismiss or a motion to modify the permanency plans so there's really no reason for an appellate court to be the first court to address the, the question finally um, i want to agree with mr cole that automatic issue preservation here doesn't just affect this case it affects many other cases in fact, I think that it can create chaos in cases that are currently pending right now. Juvenile cases continue, like I said, until, often until the juvenile turns 18. So if this court deems this issue automatically preserved, you're almost certainly going to be seeing parents moving to set aside orders because they don't contain these findings. You know, based on my own experience as a guardian ad litem and then as appell counsel to the guardian ad litem program, I can tell you that these orders don't normally contain these types of findings. And if a parent has had his rights terminated, he might even move to have that judgment set aside, and that could have cascading problems for any adoptions that have occurred in the interim. Now, Mr. Newman hasn't made any efforts uh, to address these issues, but I think they are the natural consequences of his own arguments. And that's why this case is about waiver, but it's also about a lot more than just waiver. Unless the court has any other questions for me, I'd like to turn it over to Ms. Litwack uh, on behalf of the Guardian of litem.
2: Thank you, Counselor.
5: Chief Justice and Associate Justices, may it please the court. Again, my name is Nancy Litwack, and I'm here as an appellate counsel for the guardian ad litem pro bono program in North Carolina. So I'm here on behalf of the juveniles today. Uh, Mr. Shelton has done a great job at explaining these general concepts of constitutional rights and automatic preservation. And I'm here to really hone in on the more narrow issue and the specific issue before the court in the juvenile code context, and that is namely whether a parent can waive his right to appeal a trial court order that has not determined Uh, that he was acting inconsistently with his constitutionally protected parental status. And for the line of cases over the past ten years in the Court of Appeals that have addressed this specifically, we're holding that waiver not only can exist, but often does exist in this context. Uh, And that is what the Court of Appeals held as well. Uh, The appellant would have the court believe that the Court of Appeals uh, wrongly decided the 2011 seminal case of NRA TP. And if your honors will recall, NRA TP had facts similar to this case, but the court there was assessing whether the trial court erred in applying the best interest standard um, without first deeming that that parent had acted inconsistently with its constitutionally protected parental status. The court explicitly held in NRA TP that constitutional issues not raised and passed upon at trial will not be considered for the first time on appeal. Now, appellant claims that TP is wrong because the court did not consider whether this general rule of waiver should apply. But there's simply nothing on which appellant can base that argument and, and the appellant can't show that the court did not consider that possibility. In fact, what we have in the written order is that the Court of Appeals in TP explicitly chose to find that waiver can exist in this context of a, a, child, a parent's constitutionally protected status. Uh, appellant also claims that NRA TP was wrongly decided because you can't necessarily object during these trial court hearings or because these permanency planning orders are not reduced to writing until after oral argument. But we think that appellant ignores the body of case law and also too narrowly narrowly misconstrues the concept of objection. We're not talking, Your Honors, and we would submit to the court, that we're not talking about objecting in the traditional sense of standing up with an evidentiary objection. We're talking more about this general objection to the potential infringement on the constitutional right to parent, such as, for example, if a court awards guardianship to a non-parent in a, permanent, a permanency planning matter. And moreover, the body of case law that has generated since TP shows that objecting isn't the only way that you can raise this constitutional issue. In cp a big case that we'll talk about today, is a 2018 case from the Court of Appeals. And it found that the mother waived the constitutional right because, and I quote, and this will be important, guardianship would be an inappropriate disposition on a constitutional basis. So here we have another case finding, foundationally, that waiver can and does exist in this context, but it goes further. It confirms one way that a parent can affirmatively raise the constitutional issue by arguing that guardianship would be an inappropriate disposition on a constitutional basis. This is a good time to talk about NRA BRW, the 2021 case we've brought up. Um, In that case, as we've discussed already this morning, The court found that the parent raised the issue merely by arguing against guardianship and presenting evidence to that effect. Uh, But what is preliminarily important and so important about BRW is that it never questioned this foundational truth that waiver can and does exist in this specific context. It respected the line of cases. It did not claim that there was any rebuttable presumption, and it puts the burden on the parent. Now, appellant relies on BRW for the fact that merely just by showing up, um, the parent is asserting his constitutional right. Um, And Judge Dietz, excuse me, in the concurring opinion of BRW kind of addresses how we're going to reconcile BRW with CP. Um, as Mr. Shelton indicated, again, these are juvenile cases. I'm not really privy to what a parent said or did not say specifically, so I can't speak to that. But what I can do is look at what we've got and the opinions. In CP, the court found that the parent did not raise the issue because they did not make an argument that guardianship would be an inappropriate disposition on a constitutional basis. In BRW, the court found merely by arguing against guardianship, the issue was raised. Um, I do want to point out one thing, and I want to underscore what Mr. Um, Shelton mentioned, which is that a parent can show up and argue against guardianship as to a best interest standard, not so much the constitutional. And so, on that same note, on on one thing we can agree with the appellant, and and we think that BRW may be a little unsound, and we do think the court probably needs to address that, Um, but we think that the correct approach is to find that CP was rightfully decided in line of the body of cases that have come out of the Court of Appeals, finding that waiver exists, and finding that a parent has to affirmatively assert a constitutional So, so right.
0: let me ask you the same question I Justice. asked Mr. Shelton, which is, all right, what what is an adequate preservation? I mean, what, what action adequately preserves uh, a constitutional claim, in your view?
5: Justice servant we think that, based on the line of cases that we've got, then a parent must adequately object that their constitutional rights would be infringed upon, or raise the issue that guardianship goes against their constitutional right, and it is a little bit of a—it it needs a specific constitutional argument, is what we're. Well, would it be support. sufficient
0: to say you haven't shown that I'm unfit? I,
5: I think, Your Honor, based on what I have read um, and looked at in these cases, is that this. Preliminary argument before the best interest standard is applied is that the parent was either unfit or acting inconsistently with his constitutionally protected. Well, Laurie, well,
0: right, let's say you haven't shown either that I'm unfit or that I acted inconsistently with my parental, consti my parental. I'm trying to say something that doesn't include the word constitution, and I'm about ready to say it twice, and I didn't mean to do that.
5: That's all right. I think, um, and tell me if I'm not answering your question, but I think from what I'm getting that the answer is that a parent has to affirmatively assert constitutional rights by arguing the constitutional right will be lost, and that's what the case law that we have. Do they have to
0: use the word constitutional?
5: Your Honor, based on my reading of the cases, it looks as though the court strongly favors the use of the word constitutional.
0: Is Is it a required magic word?
5: Um, That is a question that I'm not prepared to answer today, but based on what I can see in C P, which I think is a guiding case, and and I'll explain with two other cases shortly, C P found waiver where the parent did not argue, as I mentioned over and over again, I'll start flubbing over it, but um, that guardianship would be um, an inappropriate disposition on a constitutional basis. And we've got two, and admittedly, they're unpublished decisions, but NRA, M B and DT are 2017 and 2020 Court of Appeal cases. And there, the court found that waiver occurred because the parents did not argue against guardianship in the context of constitutionality. They argued against guardianship on the best interest at the um, dispositional stage. And so to me, those uh, nuances and distinctions that the court made seems to include some sort of affirmative requirement on behalf of the parent to argue constitutionality. Um, In addition to CPTP and BRW, a litany of other cases that have not only found waiver, but expounded upon that um, foundational truth. And briefly, Your Honors, In Ray RP, a 2017 case, foundationally found waiver and went on to add on to this body of law, finding that there could not be waiver where a parent doesn't have the opportunity to argue it. In that case, no evidence was allowed um, and there were no arguments put forth by the parents. Same with NRA IK, a 2018 case finding no, um, the parent wasn't afforded an opportunity to argue waiver and so waiver could not be found. So we see this body of law that holds up this notion of waiver in this context and then adds to it. Um, finally, Your Honors, and then I'll turn it over to Ms. Boucher, it's worth noting that Peterson, this, this case cited um, by Mr. Cole, does not discuss waiver in any way, shape, or form. It does not discuss whether the best interest standard was appropriately applied. It does not discuss whether the parents' due process rights were adequately protected. Peterson can exist in harmony with this line of cases. Peterson can exist in harmony with waiver. And I would submit to Your Honor that part of Peterson finds that where the child's, there's no finding that the child's welfare has been neglected, then the parent's paramount uh, right to custody prevails. So extrapolating from that, I would submit that where there has been some sort of determination that a child's welfare has been neglected, that paramount right is gone. And it, arguably, it's on the parent at that point to bring it up. And again, that's in line with what we've discussed. Um, Palant has failed to provide any authority that waiver doesn't exist because it do- that authority doesn't exist itself.
4: I'm sorry, counsel, I, and I know I'm eating into time. That's all right. Are, are you? Um, suggesting that a determination of neglect, abuse, or dependency is somehow uh, similar to a determination in a custody setting uh, that there is no longer an intact family.
5: Um, you're, I don't know if I want to say that, go that far, Your Honor. I, really, this is just me thinking more in terms of the logic used in Peterson that this paramount right to custody um, cannot, it seems that Peterson would say, where there's no finding. Um, that the child's welfare has been neglected, that that right exists. But trying to bring that into this context, which, again, I would contend that Peterson really is not on point with what's before, Your Honor, but trying to bring that into this context, um, I would try to argue that that paramount right is gone, if there's some argument regarding the parents' um, Thank right. You. So, uh, in closing, Your Honors, we respectfully ask that this Court uphold um, the Court of Appeals because it's based on well-settled law and unless this court has further questions I'll turn this over to Ms. Boucher. Thank you.
2: Thank you counsel
6: Good morning My name is Terry Boucher and I represent the Perseus County Department of Social Services And I have for the past four years when these children came into the custody of my client uh, based on abuse or neglect um, I would like to start with Justice Berger's last question a determination that children are abused, neglected, or dependent in the juvenile court does not terminate an intact family. That would go against the whole premise of the juvenile code, which is to remove children for their safety, um, to give the parents an opportunity with services injected in there to remedy the conditions that brought the children into the custody of the Department of Social Services and attempt to safely reunite them with their families. When that can happen, that's all good and well. You can have a parent who has abused or neglected their children, but still has remedied those conditions and can still safely reunite. Um, In this case, that did not happen. The parent clearly neglected his children, both of them. They lived in a home where it was injurious to their well-being. He was the only parent, he was the only person who had custody of these children. He made the determination of where these children lived and with whom they associated. And if he, uh, if they were neglected or abused in that setting, that was on him. That was his uh, failure. Additionally, I would let the court know that, thank goodness that these children had the relatives they could to assume custody, if I could just finish this point. Um, because in assuming cus- the guardianship of these children that's not a permanent determination by the grandparents at any point the juvenile court continues to retain jurisdiction a simple motion for review could be filed by mr. Newman at any time to bring it back into the court to say hey give me another look let me determine what's going on thank you counsel thank you
2: sorry your time's expired Rebuttal.
1: mr newman was not the only caretaker at the time there was at least four adults in the picture at the time the injuries happened there's no basis in the record for concluding he was responsible for the neglect that's the question the trial court refused to answer uh justice ervin i'd like to try to uh, take another stab at your stumper from before um, <clears throat> the of law that's required that is not made can the court make that conclusion when the trial court didn't. I think a good example of where that doesn't happen is terminations under 7B11A1, right? The statute requires past neglect. This court has realized if time passes, the Constitution requires more. You can't just judge the termination based on some past neglect. You have to consider intervening circumstances and likelihood of future neglect. If there is no conclusion regarding likelihood of future neglect in the termination order, that order is going back, right? We know by the lack of that conclusion in the order, the trial court didn't consider the additional requirement that this court has put on the court in those circumstances. It's the same with the Peterson presumption. Yes, the court, the trial court, has to consider it. The trial court has to know the law. The trial court has to know the law that a likelihood of future neglect determination is required in termination under 11A1. The trial court has to know the law under Peterson. Uh, when it's granting guardianship that it has to conclude that the parent has uh, forfeited their constitutionally protected status. Uh, Justice Irvin, you also asked uh, about if an order has a constitutional conclusion, then is there a preservation issue? Mr. Shelton agreed that no, if the order has the, the, the conclusion in it, there's no preservation, it can be argued on appeal. But that was TP. The order in TP had the conclusion, and so uh, that's the case that started this whole line of reasoning that tells us we have this this, this waiver now. So we have a flawed foundation for this whole line of cases. Uh, as to ME as an example of preservation law, ME is completely inapposite here because there's no Peterson equivalent in the DVPO context, right? There was no. Peterson equivalent that told the trial court, you must make a conclusion that the DVPO statute is uh, not in, unconstitutional in light of Obergefell. And again, that's why this circumstance is so unique because we have a constitutional, requir- a case law requirement that the trial court made this conclusion every time it grants guardianship. With that, I would ask the court of reverse, uh, find that the preservation is automatic uh, and thank you.
2: Thank you, Council. Thank you to everyone.